0: showed that video early on, I think it may have even been the first week of our series in Acts, about a year ago now, and I wanted to use that to jump off into what we're going to do today. Um, Maybe a little over-ambitious on my part, but um, I thought it would be good and beneficial for us to walk back through the last several months and get a big picture, again, of the book of Acts, a little bit of a review, a rewind um, of of this book. So uh, we're going to try this today. Okay? One, one of the, uh, amongst the many forms of cruel and unusual punishment that they doled out upon us in seminary was um, the first day back. So after year one Greek, or during year one Greek and year one Hebrew, uh, the first day back after Christmas break, they give us one of the most uh, major exams of the year. It was terrible. You know, like you're sitting there on like, Christmas breaks, you know, with your Christmas flashcards in between like opening presents, like, I don't know, making sure. Um, and they did the same thing in, in Hebrew. And um, I think professors like enjoy that type of thing. People like Marco, they're just, you know. Um, but no, the, the reason why, right, is they knew in, at, when I was at GRTS, at least at the time, I'm not sure if the schedule still follows this, but they, they had a two week January module. And so, by the time you got back to class, after, from the last day of class in the fall to spring, it was about five weeks. And, and they understood human nature. And if we're out of the language for five weeks, it's going to be hard to pick it back up again in, in January. So, that's why they did it to force us to review and to keep it before us so that we could come back and, and, and do well the second semester. And so, I'm not going to give you an exam today, um, but I want us to rewind and review. And, and rehearse some of the things that we've talked about. I want to do this for, for, for a few reasons. Number one, um, over the past 12 months, we've had new people come and who, who didn't get the benefit of getting the first couple weeks, especially when we were kind of giving the overview and, and where uh, the book is and the purpose of the book. So um, you're important to us. So we want you to be able to, to understand some of the context of this book. Um, for those of us who've, who've been here the whole time, and sometimes when you're in these longer series, it's easy to lose the, you know, the forest for the trees, that type of thing, like we're, we've, every chapter and we, we get kind of narrowed into this and we, we forget about the forest and, and with the overarching purpose. So I want to rehash that for us today. I want to hold us accountable to what we've heard, right? It's easy if you're like me uh, we, we hear something, I'll hear something in a sermon or, or somewhere, and, and I'll be like, oh man, that's good, and I need to work, work that out and apply that in my life, and then, you know, the week goes on, or the time goes by, and I kind of forget about it, and, you know, show up for the next week and hear the next sermon and kind of pass beyond what I heard and, and on to the next thing, and, and I think it's good for us to go back and be reminded of some of these truths and applications that we've had over the past several months, and, um, And I want to do that, I thought that would be better today, you know, often at the beginning of a year we'll preach a New Year sermon, right, that that kind of casts the vision for the new year and here's some things we want to work on. I I don't think we need to go into anything new uh, as we approach this new year. I want to go back and the things that we've already talked about are are things that we need to continue to work on as a church as we go into this new year. So that's kind of what we're doing today and why we are doing it, all right, Um, Mike, he's not in here. Uh, Mike Leon, one of, our, one of our high school students, he's a senior. Mike actually um, helped. He, he uh, asked if he could job shadow me um, a couple weeks ago. He said, can I come job shadow you on, on Thursday? And I'm thinking to myself, that's going to be the most boring job shadow in the world. Because on Thursday, I, Mike, you're going to sit across the desk from me and watch me read. Uh, you know, but we kind of put it together. I was encouraged, but Mike actually worked it out in such a way where he came. Mike actually helped me write the discussion guide. Uh, for this service, so I, I thought that was really cool. So if you taught in first service and you didn't like the discussion guide, that's Mike's fault. Um, if you did like it, it's my fault. So that's that's how. Uh, uh, but one of the questions Mike asked me, he said, uh, "He said, so Pastor Craig, because I think this is a great idea." Um, he said, "How uh, you're going to go through a lot of material? How, how are you going to keep everyone's attention that long?" And I was like, Mike. I don't know, uh, <laughs> and um, so maybe in the middle, I'll, uh, I don't have candy, I thought about it during the first service, like I should have brought candy to throw out periodically, like we do at base camp, or maybe in the middle, I'll have you get up and do jumping jacks, but um, we're going to cover a lot of ground today, but I think it's worthwhile, I want us to remember, and reflect, and evaluate, how have we done with some of the things that we have heard, okay, ready for a long trip here, okay, all right, here we go. The way I did this, too, is instead of making all the bullet points come out um, separately, it literally would have taken about 90 slides to do that because of the way we have to structure these. Like, each bullet point has to have its own slide, and then you just build it. So it looks like it's coming in, but it's really not. So this right here would be one, two, three, four, five slides right here. So I didn't feel like doing that many slides. So maybe I was just being lazy. But, so I'm kind of just giving it to you all at once, and you can be distracted and fill in the blanks while you're listening to me talk. Um, but here we go. Acts, the purpose, the theme, the background. Acts was written by Luke. Okay, uh, Written by a man named Luke. He was a physician. And Luke was a loyal co-worker with the Apostle Paul. He was the author of the Gospel of Luke. See, this is where I'm second-guessing. Things. I should have just asked these things to you in like question form and then thrown Snickers bars to you. Um, like, who wrote Acts? But we're not doing that. Uh, so Luke, the physician, co-worker of Paul. And... Uh, Author of the Gospel of Luke. Acts is intended to be read as the continuation or part two of Luke's initial gospel. And that's why there's this connection. If you read the last chapter of the book of Luke and the first chapter of the book of Acts, there's some overlap in those two chapters. And that was common back in these days when they'd write multi-volume historical works to have that kind of an overlap between the volumes, partly because there's a long time in between. It'd be very similar to you know, when we watch our favorite TV show, right? And, and you watch it and it's, you know, previously on, uh, you know, fill in the blank, whatever. So, um, I don't know, you just say it a minute. Pre- shout out your favorite TV. Previously on, oh, so, only, the rest of you don't watch TV, right? Good, good, yeah, no, uh, no, pre- right, previously on the Mandalorian or, or, or whatever, right, and, it, and it's, it's a recap, it catches us back up with the story and, and, and things, that's, that's what Luke-Acts is doing here. Um, many have suggested that a, a great title for the book of Acts would be Jesus Continued, Or acts of the risen Lord Jesus. And here's the reason why. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Luke writes this. In my first volume, I wrote about the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Began to do and teach. Implication of that is here in volume 2, I'm writing to you the things that Jesus is continuing to do and teach. So what happens in the book of Acts is still orchestrated at the end of the day by Jesus Christ himself as he unfolds his redemptive plan using his church. The other great thing about this, and Jesus continued, is that as Acts chapter 1 opens, we see Jesus ascend into heaven. And so as the story of the church unfolds, Jesus is enthroned in heaven. That's so significant because this truth is what informs our mission here on earth. This isn't arbitrary. Jesus Christ is on the throne conducting the affairs of this world and this universe. And this knowledge and this awareness is what empowers us. This is why we don't cower before worldly powers and influencers and philosophies. Because the risen king, Jesus, is orchestrating these events. The risen king, Jesus, is the leader of his church. That's why Acts 1 is significant. Luke and Acts were both written to a man named Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus. But we know this based on the purpose statement of Luke chapter 1. At the end of this passage here, I'm writing to you an orderly account for you, uh, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So apparently in some way, shape, or form, Acts is functioning along with Luke's gospel as, a, as an apologetic Part of this new movement, convincing Theophilus that this is worth it. This is truly of God. It's worth giving your life to. It's worth surrendering to. Don't go after Rome and all the other things that are out there. This is it, Theophilus. I'm writing to you so you can see what God has done. So you be convinced. It's true. It's worth it. This is a movement of God himself. Luke goes on to address some important themes in his work here, uh, the coming of the promised Holy Spirit. It's a major theme in Acts chapter 1 and 2. The birth of the church and its legitimacy. Again, Luke demonstrates, we stressed this quite a bit at the beginning, that this new movement of the church is rooted in ancient promises. This is a new era, but an old plan, right? This was always plan A. The church was always the end game. Everything pointed ahead to this. A transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, and all that went along with that, the Jew and the Gentile relationship and how Jews relate to the law under the new covenant. It's a major theme in the book of Acts. And one of the other great emphases in the book of Acts is the gospel expansion. Traced to a geographical movement. Luke loves geography. He mentions places all the time. And it starts right in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where, where the Great Commission is there. And you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's a circle that grows and grows and grows. And as you read the book of Acts, and you'll see this today in this overview, that the gospel starts in Jerusalem and it explodes throughout the world. And Acts is a picture of that. Acts is telling us how that happened. Lastly, I want to spend just a minute um, emphasizing this. Um, one of the things I, I appreciated when Dave uh, Lamb spoke here just two weeks ago, he talked about the significance of, of, of reading Scripture and having it tethered to the overarching story of the Bible. right? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. right? And every story in the Bible, every word of Scripture, every account, every book, fits into this narrative and describes something about that narrative. And Dave said uh, really well, he said, you know, we do a disservice when we untether passages uh, from the the grand narrative of Scripture. So I want to talk just for a moment about how Acts is tethered to the grand narrative of Scripture. This is important. It's kind of like, uh, this is why it's important. If you were to watch, uh, you know, you have nine Star Wars movies, right? Nine Star Wars movies, and then like, 900 TV spinoffs, but there's the nine main movies, alright, so if you like Star Wars, can you imagine the only Star Wars movie you ever watch, is like Empire Strikes Back? That'd be terrible, it's, it's a good movie, it's a good story, but it's terrible, like number one, like who's this guy walking around with a black cape and a helmet, and, and why is he related to this guy named Lou, like what's their connection? And then you go all the way to the end of that, and it's, it's, it's a terrible ending. Like, it'd be a terrible place to end the story, right? Han, Han Solo is like frozen in carbonite, and the movie ends, and you're like, well, that's depressing, that stinks. And, and if that's the only Star Wars movie you ever watched, that'd, that'd be loud, that'd be terrible. Be incomplete, right? They gotta watch the whole thing, and like, oh, I see the connections, and oh, the bad guys do lose, and, right? That's why it's important to understand where scripture fits. You see how it fits into the whole story. So I want to emphasize this, this one point here about Acts. Last days. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost raises a lot of questions in Jerusalem. What is going on here? You have the Holy Spirit come upon the disciples in the upper room. Uh, flames, they start speaking in other languages, prophesying, and this powerful proclamation of the word of God. And in, in Peter, in his sermon in Jerusalem on Acts 2, he quotes... From the book of Joel, Joel, Joel two, Joel's prophecy, and he writes this: "And in the last days, and I have that underlined for a reason. I'll show you in a minute. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." All right. This is Peter. This is Peter saying, "This is what's happening." This this prophetic word from Joel 2, this is what you're seeing here on the day of Pentecost, and he uses this terminology of the last days. If you go back to Joel's prophecy, Joel writes something very similar, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. But you notice, hopefully, because it's underlined, Paul nuances it just a little bit different. Paul substitutes afterward for last days. Where does Paul get that language? Why is he using that terminology? Well, most commentators believe he gets it from here. Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the last days... ...that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains... ...and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord... To the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Why does all that matter? We could spend a ton of time talking about this. Let me summarize it for you real quick. What Peter is doing in his sermon in Acts 2 is that he is locating the events of Pentecost... And by extension, everything that happens after that, he is locating that in the last days. Right? In the last days. The Joel 2 connection is obvious. It's almost quoted word for word, except for that little change at the beginning. The Isaiah terminology is also striking and significant. So I believe that Isaiah 2, I believe it's pointing to a greater fulfillment beyond the day of Pentecost. That said, the way prophecy works in scripture, oftentimes in scripture, prophecy will have fulfillment, and then a fuller fulfillment, and then a fuller fulfillment. And I think that's part of what we are seeing going on here. I think it has a greater fulfillment beyond Acts 2, but the significance of Jerusalem as being a place that the truth of God's word flows out from certainly fits the book of Acts. The nation's are well represented, right? Isaiah speaks to the nations. The nations are represented in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. These people hear and believe, and they become part of God's end-time temple, the house of the Lord, the terminology used in some translations. Why does this matter? Like, what's the... Here's why. We read Acts as history, rightly so, but I want to suggest to you this morning that Acts is also an end-times book. In the sense that it tells us the church's role in the last days that were inaugurated at Pentecost. This is why Peter locates the events of Pentecost in the last days. It's how we are to live in the last days. Places like Ephesians would fit this. Right? Paul writes this in Ephesians 3. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The final move in redemptive history before consummation is the advent of the church. This was always what it was pointing to. Peter acknowledges that in his sermon. The last days are here, so is the church. This is the means that God created, that God um, began in order to be a light of the kingdom in the last days. So this is why that's significant. It's tempting for us to read Acts simply as a history book. And think about the way they conducted themselves, right? The the example there, the the spirit-controlled nature of that church, the discipleship, the missional and gospel expansion, their emphasis on prayer, their functional care of one another. It'd be tempting to read it and go, oh, man, how quaint, how cool. That's the way it was. It's the ideal. So we should model it, too, because those were the good old days, But I would suggest to you today, it is not just history. This is supposed to be what characterizes the people of God in the last days. And the fact that it's the last days should totally reorient our perspective to how we live in this world. A sense of urgency should characterize our mission in the church, not just coming and getting fat and lazy and learning more, but understanding that this is missional, these are the last days and when we understand that something is near its end, it kind of lights a fire in us, does it not? When we were down in Indiana for Christmas, we understood as a family that this was going to be the last time we were all going to be together in that house that we have 20 something years of memories in with grandma and grandpa. We knew that house would be sold this year. And Grandpa would be moving up here. And I remember, Chris and Hannah, as they were leaving that house the last time, you know, they, they were crying. And I said to them, I said, girls, take a look around. Because it's probably the last time you guys will be here. And, and throughout those days that we were there, we, we tried to make sure we did all the stuff. Um, the donuts that Grandpa gets from the local bakery. And the Mexican restaurant, that's our favorite one there. And all these things, we've got to get these in, we've got to get these in. Because this is it, this is going to end. And there was a little bit of a sense of urgency. It was different this time. That's how we have to understand we read a book of Acts and understand our mission. It's different. It isn't just a quaint history. It's our marching orders, and we need to follow them with a sense of desperation and urgency because this is ending, and people are dying and going to hell, and we dare not be complicit in that by keeping our mouths quiet and sitting here non-missional, just getting fat and happy within the walls of this building. Right? Missional. The last days. Daryl Bach writes, Luke hoped that others would come to appreciate what God had done and was doing through what became the church. In, those, in this way, those in the community could be encouraged and come to a deeper appreciation of their heritage, while others could be exhorted to be a part of what God was doing. So, here's a brief overview then of where we've gone. That's kind of the introduction. Here it is. Story from Acts 1 to Acts 18. The book opens in Acts 1. The risen Jesus gives final instructions to his disciples, and he ascends into heaven. Right? We talked about that. He's enthroned in heaven now. He tells his disciples, very important point, go and wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you. And in the context of that, he gives them a, re, a rehashing, a restatement of the great commission that we come across in Matthew 28. Again, we're told that our mission is going to be to take the gospel, Preach the gospel, making disciples, right? So we have a, a re-echoing of the Great Commission here. And then Matthias is chosen to replace the betrayer, Judas. That's Acts 1. We move into Acts 2, Pentecost. We've already alluded to Pentecost. This was the birth of the church. They're in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit does come upon the disciples. Flames of fire, a great rushing wind, and they're empowered, and, and they go out and they proclaim the gospel, and Peter stands in the city where Jesus had been crucified just weeks before and preaches with such power and authority under the Holy Spirit that 3,000 people come and are added to this movement, become followers of Jesus Christ. And then we have this snapshot of, of the church and what they prioritized as an end times institution in the book of Acts. We talked about this quite a bit when we were in it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And and day By day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Right? The end times missional church must prioritize these things. Acts 3 goes on. Signs and wonders begin to happen among the disciples in the church. Peter heals a lame beggar. Uh, there in Acts chapter 3. And in his sermon, it, it attracted people, got people's attention, and he preaches a sermon. And in his sermon, he presents Christ as the risen, vindicated Son of God. Remember, Jesus continued. Peter's like, the Jesus you crucified, he's risen, he's enthroned, he's behind this healing and then he calls on people to repent, which is an astounding statement on his part. Because he's saying, you who are complicit in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, repent. There's an opportunity due to the unfathomable grace of God for people who are complicit in the crucifixion to turn their lives around and find forgiveness and grace and mercy at the cross of Jesus Christ. What an astounding thing. And that's the theme there in this chapter. Well, it moves on to Acts chapter 4, and we begin these persecution cycles. Uh, Peter and John and presumably the, the, the former lame man were brought in to the, the, the religious leaders and are questioned, and they're given a stern warning. Don't do that again. Stop talking about Jesus. You know, they, they didn't listen. <laughs> Stop talking about Jesus. And Peter and John, they go back to the church, and like we were warned, they threatened us. And the church offers this incredible prayer at the end of Acts chapter 4. They don't pray, hey, God, change our circumstance. Oh, God, help us not to suffer. They pray, God, grant us boldness to proclaim. Boldness. That was their request, that we won't cower back in fear and trembling. And as the chapter closes, we see another snapshot in Acts 4, 32 through 36, that is very similar to the the, the passage at the end of Acts chapter 2 the things that matter to the church. Acts 5, the church comes under attack from the inside and the outside. You have Ananias and Sapphira and, and their planned sin in the church. That's an attack from within. Sin can't be tolerated in the covenant community of God. And if it infiltrates the church and is allowed to go unchecked, it brings the church to a bad place. So we see how sin is to be dealt with. There's the attack from within. There's an attack from without. The leaders of the apostles are brought in again and questioned, and this time they're beaten. This is the second cycle of persecution. It's growing a little bit in its intensity. We move on to Acts chapter 6. The church has experienced growing pains. We unpack this, right? The early church was not perfect. People in the early church complained. Oh, they did. There's some growing pains. They're being stretched. Like, and, and the complaint centered around, the one, this one in particular that they recorded here was centered around the care of widows. And you had Greek widows. And, and like, how are we going to take care of these? And there's the two sides a little, little bothered by one another. But they work it out. They solve the issue from within. They choose these seven men. Many see this as the birth of the office of Deacon. If it wasn't the official birth of it, it's the prototype. These seven men are chosen to care for the needs of people so the apostles can dedicate themselves to the preaching of the word and prayer. And we're introduced to one in particular, his name's Stephen. Stephen kind of rises to the top, and he's filled with the spirit, and he's skilled in proclaiming the word of God. And he's arrested. We move into Acts chapter 7. And Stephen, after his arrest, gets up, and he preaches... To uh, the, the religious leaders there. And he rehearses Israel's history and their stubbornness towards God over the centuries. And basically, he turns that on them and says, You're just like them. You're stiff necked, stubborn. Guess what? That didn't play real well. And now, instead of warnings and beatings, Stephen is killed. Persecution cycle number three. Really ramped up now. But something happens in that persecution. We're introduced to a man named Saul at the end of this chapter. Saul was a leader, and he's there, and it says he's there holding people's coats. Here, Matt, let me take your coat. Pete, let me take yours. So you can hold two rocks in your hand instead of one. And he's watching. as guys are throwing rocks and watching Stephen be bloodied there, falling to his knees eventually, and he's enjoying it. Ah, silence. Silence these people. Keep proclaiming Jesus. It's our introduction to this man named Saul. They're kind of emboldened by this. In Acts chapter 8, persecution really ramps up. And they start, uh, the intensity becomes greater. And people have to flee. Believers have to flee Jerusalem. But you know what it tells us, right, in verse 4 of Acts 8? It tells us they didn't go and cower back and say, we need to lay low for a little bit. Because this persecution is getting a little intense. It says in verse 4, as they go, they proclaim the gospel. And I would suggest that in some ways, the gospel proclamation that happened as a result of persecution was probably one of the greatest gospel spreads in the book of Acts. The common people, as they flew uh, flew? Jerusalem, flee, fled. There we go. As they fled Jerusalem. Sounds like a kid book. Flee, flew, flew, fled. I found it. Okay. Um, They proclaim the gospel. And it goes... On. That gospel spread is, is is spreading beyond Jerusalem. And we're introduced to a man named Philip and his missional work with a Samaritan and then the Ethiopian eunuch who converts and then takes that good news to North Africa. Gospel spread. Acts 9. This man named Saul we met. God says, Ah, I've got a purpose for that guy. And Paul's on his way to Damascus so he can kill more Christians. And Jesus appears to him in blinding light, and Paul's life is forever changed. Redemptive history is forever changed. And Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? You are going to be my chosen means to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul's life is radically changed, and he becomes the apostle to uh, the Gentiles. He begins his ministry. At the end of chapter 9, Peter is highlighted as well. His ministry continues. He heals a paralytic man and raises Tabitha from the dead. Gospel going on. Acts chapter 10. Peter receives this vision. A Gentile named Cornelius. Or I'm sorry. He didn't, Cornelius wasn't his vision. He, he sees this vision of this, this sheet coming down with clean and unclean animals. And God tells him to eat. And, and Peter's like, what? I don't eat unclean animals. And, and God's saying, Peter, stop calling unclean things clean. Stop with the designation of clean and unclean. Peter's like, what does this mean? And all of a sudden some guys show up and say, hey, A guy named Cornelius had a vision of you. Can you come and and share the gospel with him? All of a sudden, Peter gets it. And this Jewish man, Peter, for the first time, steps into a Gentile house, proclaims the gospel to Cornelius, and this man comes to Jesus. And in what many call a second Gentile Pentecost, the second Pentecost, a Gentile Pentecost, the spirit comes down on Cornelius and the Gentiles there, and Peter's like, whoa. And it's so intense that in Acts 11, the Jewish leaders bring Peter and the, the, the leaders of the church and say, Peter, what were you doing, man? You're in a Gentile house? And Peter's like, guys, let me tell you. And he, he recounts the story almost word for word. See, there's a point of emphasis. You, you read the same story almost twice. And Peter said, you know what I learned? I learned that God's doing something. I understand God shows no partiality. We can no longer call unclean what God has called Clean. He said, if God gave them the same gift he gave us, the Spirit, God's in this. So significant. Widespread gospel advance then continues. and There's a focus in this chapter on Antioch, which becomes the place uh, that missionaries are sent out to the rest of the Roman world. That's where Paul finds his base of operation eventually in Barnabas. And Antioch, the first place that believers are called Christians. And then this really awesome thing at the end of this chapter is there's a famine, um, there's a food issue in Jerusalem, and the Antioch church brings um, relief and sends relief to them. And now you see the Gentile church and the Jewish church showing us what it means now, one people of God. The church functioning together. Acts chapter 12, Herod ramps up his persecution of the church. The apostle James is killed, he's martyred. Peter, for some reason, is miraculously rescued by an angel. It's a great example. Sometimes you're like, why does God rescue some and and have others I don't know. You see it happen here. James is martyred. Peter is miraculously rescued. But the great part about this chapter is that Herod, he, he dies a disgraceful death because of his defiance of God. And chapter 12 closes after Herod dies. It says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas sent on their first missionary journey accompanied by a man named John Mark, a young man who ultimately quits on him and leaves. But here in this first missionary journey, we see Paul establishing his pattern of beginning in synagogues when he arrives in a new city. We also see the pattern established of Jewish rejection followed by Gentile receptivity as Paul goes around to these different cities. Acts 14, um, the, the missionary journey continues. He goes to Iconium where he faces persecution. Uh, He's stoned at Lystra. He and Barnabas are stoned there because they refuse to be worshipped as gods. Then you get to Acts 15, the Jerusalem council. One of the significant points in the whole book when the, the Jewish church finally re- re- kind of makes a decision, this is how we understand and we are to relate, Jew and Gentile. His letter is sent to Antioch saying, the law does not apply to you. You don't have to worry about keeping it the way we have And then as the chapter closes, there's this dispute, a fight between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark's inclusion in future journeys. They separate, and Silas joins Paul for a second missionary journey. Acts 17, the second missionary journey commences. They meet a man named Timothy on this journey, becomes a significant player in the early church. On the second missionary journey, it's where they run into this frustrating moment where the Spirit blocks their movement into Asia. Okay, we're not going to go to Asia, we'll go to Bithynia. The Spirit blocks their movement to Bithynia. They end up at Troas. At the end of the line, you can't go any fur, further west than Troas. You're up against the Aegean Sea. And finally, as they're sitting there, probably frustrated, like, God, why no? Why is there a no here? Why is there no here? Now a, a vision appears, and there's a Macedonian man saying, Paul, come help us. And Paul puts it together and says, now we know why God said no. And he and Silas, they get on a boat and they cross the Aegean and the gospel ends up on Rome's back door. And they begin ministering in places like Philippi and Thessalonica, amidst a lot of challenge and a lot of hardship and a lot of opposition. Athens, Mars Hill, the second missionary journey. And then Acts 18, our last place we were, they end up in this city of Corinth They have a long stay there. They meet a man and a woman named Priscilla and Aquila who become crucial ministry partners. We're introduced to a man named Apollos who Priscilla and Aquila, disciple, and Apollos goes out and unleashes the power of the gospel. We see God moving. And here we are, ready to go to Ephesus next week. So what are some quick takeaways from the survey of the book of Acts. Well, number one, we are completely dependent upon the presence and power of the Spirit. Completely dependent. Jesus tells the disciples, you go to Jerusalem, you go to the house, and you wait for the Spirit to come. You wait there. Right? He understood. None of this happens without the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen. Listen. We accomplish nothing as a church without the power of the Spirit. And I don't care if you're teaching or if you're leading worship or if you're coming on Sunday just to be here and interact with people. We need to be praying as we come and gather, God, give me your Spirit today. Anything that happens is under the power and control of your spirit. When I go out to work Monday morning or to school Monday morning, I'm saying, God, I need your spirit. If I am to be missional and make any kind of impact in the world, I have to have your spirit. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot live your Christian life. You cannot be missional in this world without the power of the spirit. We have to be asking God for that, right? We will maintain the centrality of the word of God. We as a church will continue to do what we must do to protect doctrine and truth here in our church family. Right? We want to keep getting better at that and making sure, one of the things we talk about deacon and elders, we need to go back and we need to make sure that anytime someone's teaching here at Forest Hills, every year are re-signing our doctrinal statement. Every time, every year, re-signing that. So they're not signing it once, and four, five, six, seven years later, they're kind of, no, we, we're, we, you have to sign on to this, and if you don't agree with this, you cannot teach here, right? We have to do our part to protect that here in this church. We'll continue to emphasize and use Scripture, right? May this pulpit never be used simply for inspirational homilies that make us feel good. We'll proclaim the Word of God. We must provide a way for new and young believers to get grounded in the basics of biblical theology and doctrine, Right? That's a process that probably involves some kind of class and pathway that we can send them on. But also, we all are responsible for that. Making sure people are being discipled. Right? We will refuse to cave to the world's philosophies and ways of thinking. We must be devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. All right, we emphasize that from Acts 2. That word devoted is key right? I'm going to skip these quotes for now. Fellowship costs us something. It costs us something. My investment in you, your investment, it'll cost me something. I can't just do it the times when it's convenience. I got to go out of my way to build relationships. I have to go out of my way to love you well. You have to go out of your way to love each other well, and sometimes it's going to inconvenience you. But we have to commit ourselves to that, devoted to these things. I think Forest Hills Baptist Church is really good at being devoted to the preaching of the word. I'm not saying this, we have awesome teachers. It's such a high value here. We could put three or four guys in this pulpit on a Sunday, and they're capable and can teach the word of God. We We do that well here. Our classes, we do that well here. Our teachers, children's ministry, we do that well. I think that we can always improve at prioritizing one another and making time for each other. So we just talked about. And, and one of those ways, none of these are magical, but we do need to be taking advantage of the opportunities that the church creates. Things like uh, hub groups, studies, regular gatherings, fusion, opportunities like the three-by-three three groups, showing up for baby and wedding showers, serving together in ministry. Right? We need to value those things. Be devoted to them. Care deeply for one another outside of the walls of this building. The prayer part. Eh. Okay. To be honest with you, it's probably one of the things that honestly often discourages me the most, so is our lack of zeal for prayer. It's one of the most significant things we can do as a church, and it's also the thing that many of you just simply ignore. The public gathering for prayer. You cannot read the book of Acts. You cannot read this book without seeing a correlation between their commitment to gathering for prayer and the power that was unleashed in them and through them. If you read the book and don't see that, you're, just, you're, you're blind. It's, it's there, embracing it. Embrace hard. Be ready for opposition, right? Face persecution over and over and over again. But it was the common people who went out boldly proclaiming the scriptures. Embrace hard. Finish well. I took Maggie rock climbing yesterday. This, this is really hard. She did it for a few hours. And as we're getting ready to be done, there was this one while she's like, I want to finish on a, on a harder one. I think and so she finished on this one. It was pitched. It went up a little bit, then it pitched back. And, uh, and she got to that. And I, I appreciate that. I'm like, man, now you wait to finish strong. You, you, like, you, you embrace hard. You don't want to just finish with something easy. You embrace hard. That's what we have to be willing to do embrace hard. We need to take sin seriously, deal with it when it infiltrates the church. We need to address growing pains with grace and a willingness to pitch in and be a part of the solution. Right? The dispute over the widows in, in Acts 6, they were, they were complaining about it, but they talked through it. Like as we grow and continue to grow, we're going to have growing pains. There are going to be things exposed that we don't do well. And there's a few of them. I get that. right? But our, our response often to a lot of things is that we're just reactors. My first response, just to get mad, I've heard so many people like I was just so mad about. I'm like, why? Why is our first response mad? Like, stop. And I, chief of sinners. Okay, I, I'm a reactor. I oftentimes react instead of respond. What's the. Um, I already go again with the girly thing. I, we watched Father the Bride this summer with, uh, with my daughters. So my daughter's getting married this next summer. So, I'm like, let's watch Father the Bride. That's a terrible movie to watch with your girls when you're getting married. And the whole they're like laughing at me the whole time. My daughter's like, eh. But, but the, the, the dad, he has this great line in that movie. He's like, I'm the, the chief of overreactors, and I come a lo- from a long line of overreactors. And my daughters all look at me like, Dad. I'm like, okay, I'm guilty. I get it. Right? But we all do it. Like, I'm just getting mad. I'm just mad. Like, stop getting mad. Talk. Be reasoned. Seek to understand. Sit down and have a conversation. Novel, right? It's more the way of Jesus than just getting mad. Work through it. That's what they did. It's what they did. Be encouraged. God is truly behind this movement that we find ourselves in. Handle disputes and disagreements with grace and gospel first mentality, right? We kind of just addressed this, but I'm so struck with the way Paul and Barnabas handled that disagreement over John Mark. They split up for a trip. They didn't split up for life. They both remained part of this Antioch church. And you see, we talked about this, their interactions later on, how they talked about one another. Paul, including John Mark and his ministry, they conducted themselves in such a way that gospel ministry was able to continue with them we get mad and we, I'm done, forget you, we cut off that relationship, cut off it, no, learn from Acts, confidently follow God's leading, even when it conflicts with our plans and doesn't make sense to us, I'm going to ask Luke and the worship team to come on up to this last song, confidently follow God's leading, even when it conflicts with our plans, right, Paul's plans were messed with, Asia, no, Bithynia, no, Macedonia, Paul, that's where you're going, God's plans will often conflict with ours. Yield to that. And lastly, make disciples. If you think about it, Paul, John, Mark, Timothy, Apollos, at one point in the book of Acts were disciples, being discipled by somebody else. And they go on to become these incredible pillars in church history because of discipleship. That's what we're called to do. If the church is central to God's purpose as seen in both history and the gospel, It must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center?